Welcome to Conversations with Leaders, Ask the Strategists. I'm Jake Burns, and I'm joined by my colleagues, Brian Landerman and Phil Lebrun. Today, we're talking about Phil's blog, Experiment More, Fail Less, and what that means to us. Phil, Brian, welcome to the podcast. Hey, Jake. Thanks, Jake. So, Phil, I was reading your uh, blog post uh, from actually last October uh, titled Experiment More, Fail Less. And uh, I really like this topic, so I thought maybe we can dive a little bit deep into it. So what do you mean by that, first of all? It's amazing the number of meetings you sit in and people say things like, we need to fail faster. And I don't know about you, but very few of my career-defining promotions have been based on massive failures, which I did quickly. Uh, and it's actually a, such an off-putting phrase to hear people say, let's fail more often. It's just such an unhuman thing to say. Yeah. I've noticed that um, when, when meeting with customers, they don't, really, uh, they don't really resonate with that message of fail more often as well. And I've always kind of had a little bit of a problem with that message. I know there's a good intention behind it. You know, what we're really saying is try more things and uh, don't be uh, afraid of failure. Build your kind of uh, mechanisms in a way to where uh, failures are not catastrophic, so you're kind of incentivized to try things. But we're not saying that your goal is to fail, right? Yeah, right. Like uh, Facebook, right? They move fast and break things. It's definitely um, could be taken the wrong way, and 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 not really. I think what what people mean. I think you can look at it from like a status quo perspective, and uh, you know, trying trying new things, not getting stuck in the old way, learning quickly. But it's catchy. Move move fast, mm -hmm. break things is catchy, but it's uh, it's not really what we mean. Well, I think if you're going to fail, fail fast and fail early, right? I think that's kind of the mm -hmm. point here, if the way I understand it. Um, the earlier, if, if something's not going to succeed ultimately and you can fail earlier in the process, then you can save yourself a lot of time and expense and effort, um, kind of cutting your losses early and moving on to the next thing. Well, yeah, I think that's a basic premise, isn't it? It's the fact that so many mm -hmm. projects we plan and plan and plan, assuming we can take out all risk, and then there's still things we don't expect. So uh, it's you know a very traditional way of approaching projects. And until technology like the cloud appeared, it was the way things were done. But now there's the opportunity to try things quickly, scale massively if they work, or shut them down cost-effectively if, if they don't. Yeah, it's interesting that you bring cloud into that, Phil, because you know we we've talked a lot on on this podcast about uh, one way, two way doors, and for a while, infrastructure was a a one way door to some extent, right? And we've the cloud now makes that a two way, where you know failing and backing off of an idea because it didn't work doesn't mean that you have all this capital invested, you know, or that it took you a long time to to get deployed, and so you had to put a whole bunch of effort on, on you know, upfront to make sure that everything was lined up. So when you got there, it was ready for you. Yeah, that is definitely a, a huge piece of it. Even though culturally, for me, it feels disconnected. At Cox Automotive, we talked about fail fast, and and we're trying to build that failing culture well before we really had cloud of, as part of our strategy. I don't think there's anything. Start I think obviously cloud allows you to do things very differently today and experiment with machine learning or blockchain or IoT before you make massive investments. But there's other ways I think organizations can do it and traditionally have. I, I've used wireframes in the past, interactive wireframes. We've even used things like blocks of wood to try form factors for a handheld. So I think it's an ideal <laughs> opportunity for teams to get really creative with a mind to test a hypothesis versus prove that they're right around a set of requirements. So yeah, so be, besides you know using cloud rather than kind of traditional on-premises data center, 
um, I think it'd be good for us to kind of explore some of the ways that you can fail quickly, keeping in mind that the, the, the mission is not to fail. The mission is if you're going to fail to kind of discover it early enough. Because I've, I've gotten asked this question a few times uh, by customers, like, how exactly do you fail quickly? Right? Give me some examples of how to do that. Um, one of the things that I use is, uh, or one of the uh, ideas that uh, I like to bring up is kind of uh, the working backwards process. And kind of this idea of clearly articulating what the problem is and what the benefit of your solution is. Because I personally found going through that process, most ideas, uh, you know, fail before you put any resources into it. Right. Right. Just going through that process of clearly articulating what the problem is, what the benefit to the customer is and all of that forces you to think through it enough to kind of understand if it's not going to work, understand at that stage that it's not going to work before you actually start doing implementation. So the thing that I find interesting about that is it still requires a significant amount of upfront work, but it's it's all oriented around clarity of thought and a clarity of the experience. Like, what will it feel like to interact with this thing, whether it's a process or a you know whatever, um, or a product? But I agree, you do that upfront vetting. It isn't to the level of detail where you're talking about what you would picture for traditional requirements to go and build a piece of software. Like the the actual software is still fairly nebulous if you think about, you know, that working backwards process. It's all about what it will feel like, you know, why the customer would appreciate it and what it what it would feel like to interact with it. So it's it's a very different way of investing cycles to clarify what you're going to build. There's still space for the teams to explore and navigate and experiment even within that already clarified thinking. Well, I think that's the key, Brian. It's a, it's a bit of a mindset change, isn't it? You look at traditional projects where you spend months and months coming up with the requirements and then people defend the requirements because they've spent so much energy on it versus defending an outcome, which is very different because that outcome as you progress towards it may result in a very different set of requirements than people expected in the first place. So I just love the way it switches the focus from have you put all 150 of my requirements into the product to does it actually achieve the outcome we all agreed to in the first place? Yeah, I think that's a great point. And, and I found personally that my personality is such that I don't like to fail. You know, I want to have a 100% success rate. <laughs> of course, you uh, it's hard to achieve that, but that that's what I aim for. And I've struggled with this in the past because um, I think it's an anti-pattern of, of strategic success to um, kind of uh, throw good money after bad, to kind of win at all cost, kind of stick with the bad idea right. um, because you're kind of already invested in it. But on the other hand, um, like you're saying, you know, that the, the, the idea itself, if the idea is good, then that's worth defending and that's worth finding a way to implement that idea. But I think it's, it's, it's important to kind of understand the difference between the two, right? One is like a bad idea that I've already invested in, so I want to see it work, which is strategically, I think, a bad idea to, to continue with that. Uh, the other one is it's a great idea, but maybe our initial implementation was not successful. How, how have you both seen that mindset shift actually happen? Because I, I agree with you, Jake. I think we're all brought up to be right. And the problem is that's very hard to let go of because someone will make a statement and then you feel obligated to prove why you're right. That sort of confirmation bias. Um, what have you seen that, that works beyond the working backwards process to change that um, ability to accept that your first view of a particular problem may not be uh, right? I mean, I think it's about changing from rewarding or being right about the solution 
and instead being right about the problem that what you're trying to solve is is definitely a problem for your customer and and something worth solving and i think if you put more time and energy into validating that you've you are tackling the right problem and then giving freedom right to find the best way to solve that problem it's it's very different right it's it's less personal about I'm really smart and I solved this this thing in a great way, right? We it we it's hard not to get behind your ideas, right? But I think when your when your idea or your thing is about a, a problem that customers have demonstrated time and time again that you can, you know, have anecdotal evidence behind as well as some data about um, the impacts the challenge is having, it, it's it feels a little subtle maybe, but it. I think it really does change be- the behavior and how you follow through with it. Yeah, and and as much as I hate this kind of answer, um, I'll explain it. It's it's I think it's about culture, in a way, because I, maybe a better way to frame that is it's about accountability, and not so much the accountability of the person uh, who's proposing the idea, but of the people that they work with, the people on your team, and the people that you involve. And I think a great example of this at Amazon is uh, have backbone, disagree, and commit. I think that's why we're able to do this is because we have that principle and we, we enforce it. Um, so, you know, if you, if you disagree with something, you're not going to be uh, punished for speaking up. In fact, if you, if it's later learned that you disagree and you didn't speak up that you might get punished for that and having that kind of cultural attitude and actually living that way creates a system where, you know, if someone, if there's a hole in someone's idea, like let's discover it as early as possible. Let's share that idea with as many people as possible and let's make it their job to say something, um, be as critical as possible. And, and I think the key there is like having that situation where people feel comfortable and encouraged to do that rather than the default, which is for them to kind of keep their mouth shut because they don't want to say something bad about, uh, you know, I don't want to tear down your idea. Right. But I think that's that's a kind of a toxic uh, mindset that, that I don't want to say something bad. You definitely should say something bad, especially early in the process, especially if you see something like a fatal flaw. Yeah, it's, it's interesting because you, you need that sort of egoless leader in place um, to be, and, and for them to create that environment of safety. But, you know, Brian, I love the way you framed it up. It's almost like strategic leadership is the ability to identify the right problem to go after. Being the most senior person in the organization doesn't mean you're the one that's going to come up with the answer. That's where you need to push down some of those decisions to folks who are really close to the action and you can work through the actual solution with the customer. Yeah. And well, and even, you know, as I said that, I'm, I was thinking about, you know, the, our, our six pagers and our working backwards process and thinking about, well, we do both, right? We, we both define the problem and we support why we want to solve that problem, but we do tend to propose a solution to it as well. So it's it's interesting. It's not like one without the other, but it does it does always start with the problem. And to Jake's point, you know, how how we go about solving that problem does emerge by getting a lot of feedback from a diverse group of people that are poking intentionally there to poke holes, to help you right. you know, tell you all the reasons why this isn't going to work or or why you're thinking in the wrong way or whatever about the problem. It's like looking at it from different lenses and different angles just to strengthen the idea. And I think, I think that is to me, like going back to this, this failure conversation, that's one of the big gaps. I know it was a, historically I've seen a, a weakness where uh, we call it in our, you know, future of enterprise IT, the, 
um, highest paid person's opinion, right? There's a lot of a lot of decision making that goes that way, and you know we we end up going and solving problems because someone said to, someone decided, convinced themselves or others that it was the thing we should do, and right. it lacks a lot of that upfront strengthening of the idea, vetting of the idea, and I feel I feel like that's maybe one of the biggest issues. Because then, then it's hard to go and be accountable. It's hard to go and 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 learn from the failures and and publicize the failure and and create a culture where that's okay if it's your you know your highest paid people that are making those decisions. I I totally agree with that, Brian. I think there's another flavor of that. That there's a highest paid person, and then there's also the kind of more influential person, right? It takes a a, a real deliberate effort to take that out of the equation. And I think at Amazon, that's something that we focus a lot on. Is uh, you know, when, when things are in the idea stage, um, to kind of take that component of, you know, you could have person A and person B have the same idea. Person A is far more persuasive. Their idea is much more likely to get instituted by default and in most of our organizations. And that's a problem because who cares how influential that person is? We want the best idea. So how do you take that component out of the equation and let the best ideas win? Well, it's interesting. I, I, the writing culture is, is, Probably not unique to Amazon, but you don't see it in many companies. Uh, I'd certainly advocate for it. But in lieu of that, I think understanding the people you're working with too, because it doesn't even need to be the most influential. It could simply be the person with the most words they want to say in a meeting. Um, mm. And one of the things right, we used to right. do was put people through what we called insights. So we went through and identified, are you red, blue, green, or yellow? Are you someone who... Um, wants time to think through things before you give an idea, or are you going to be spur of the moment and spit out your idea without thinking about it? it? What it actually did was create a lot more respect for people's thinking styles, and it deliberately made room for those people who wanted a bit more time to think, to give them the space to process and then bring them into the conversation. Right. So so I had this problem, you know, something, probably my biggest challenge that I struggled with uh as a leader kind of in my, my previous life, which was, you know, you'd be in a meeting, um, you know, with, with kind of your leadership and you would know there's a bunch of people who have something to say, but they just won't say it, you know, like if they disagree, but you know what they do immediately after that meeting, they come to you privately and they say it. And my response was always, why didn't you say that in the meeting? This could have been a great discussion. And you get like three, four people coming up to you saying things. And it's like, let's go back in the meeting room and say that same thing. And let's have a discussion. So I don't know what it is, a, a lack of kind of that feeling of safety, um, like a cultural thing. Um, but but there tends to be this tendency where people don't want to do that. But I think that's such a necessary step in getting the letting those best ideas kind of bubble up and and get surfaced and also allowing a diversity of opinion to kind of poke holes in that and find where there's deficiencies and blind spots. So I'm curious if you guys kind of ran into that and, you know, how you addressed it. Yeah. I mean, so what you're saying though is making, and I'm not trying to take us off track here. I will respond to your question, but I started thinking about was if you step back and you look at your culture, I think it becomes really important to understand how people get things done. And I think, so some, some of what you're talking about is, you know, people being intentional about entering a room with a certain set of people or a presentation or what, whatever, a style to get what they want, right? As an example, that might be one, mm -hmm. one thing. And that's how they get things done. They've, they've mastered that inside your organization and, and found ways to, you know, whether it's intentional or not, but, but it does shut people down 
depending on what you know again what your what your culture is and and how people operate within it and i'm not surprised by what you're talking about jake and i think we saw it you know i've seen it in my career i think you it does come back to leadership right it does come back to demonstrating that it is okay and that you actually want people to speak up I suspect, especially as you get into larger organizations, I certainly saw it. Um, there are certain leaders that are have gotten really good at figuring out how to execute within your environment, and they are perfectly happy continuing that way because they're getting things done. <laughs> and I think that 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 comes right. down to the the root of it, right? Is you've got to get the whole organization on board. You've got to get the bad actors to start changing their behavior because. And they're not going to be willing to, right? Because they're they're doing just fine. They're getting a lot of things done their way. And that's where it becomes really difficult to make the change. Yeah, you're right. I, it really is difficult because it is cultural and it starts at the most senior levels. I, still 50% of transformations fail at the board level because folks sit around the room, they all talk about something like digital transformation, all nod their heads and then leave the room, either not understanding what they've just talked about or saying, yeah, that's an IT thing. So I agreed to it, but it's nothing to do with me. And yeah, Jake, I think your approach is spot on. If you embrace that, if you enable that, if folks come to you after the meeting and say, well, that wasn't a very good meeting. I didn't agree with it. And you give them airtime, then it's just going to encourage that culture. I, I do think more companies need to think deliberately about the culture they want, and make it explicit. And then, of course, the hard part of that is how do you live it every day? Because it's so easy to revert, particularly, you know, we all come from large enterprises. All of those have strong cultures and changing the culture is such a difficult proposition. But that's what leadership is, is about. That's right. I So I was talking to a customer recently who kind of, my question was, well, how do you prioritize? How do you how do you guys choose what to work on? And you know, I I didn't get super deep into the mechanics of this, um, but it sounds it sounds really interesting. Which is the objectives that they agree on for the year. They have an offsite where all the executives like the whole purpose is to discuss how you're supporting this objective. So it it, it could be an initiative that's that's focused on customer service, but in IT, you know, what, what are you doing to support this or and vice versa to, and I think it, it's aimed at kind of what you're getting at Phil, which is signing up for something, thinking you don't have a lot of level of ownership and delivering on it and not leaning into it. It's like the, the, the commit without the, you know, the disagreement and the follow through to actually get it done. Right. When, when we talk about disagreeing commit, um, but it's an interesting approach. I, I, you know, I'm, I'm sure there's plenty of others, but it does seem to start there, right? Of supporting and owning the, the, the success and the follow through of, of the company's objectives. And I've, I've seen many, many times that it's, it tends to be fragmented in a lot of, a lot of businesses. It's like, well, that's not my initiative. Like, yes, I have some things and I'll, yep, I've got to do work for it, but, but I don't own the success of it. Right. And, I think that's sh not, not that you want shared ownership from the point of like, no one owns it. You need to have that single threaded owner, but yeah. people have to have skin in the game. You can't have bifurcated success uh, at the leadership table. That's such an important point. You know, uh, the way I think about this, I think a, an analogy usually works here when I'm kind of trying to describe this topic or this uh, idea to people, but it's kind of like, uh, definitely you got to have accountability. You got to have that kind of person, you know, who you kind of diffusion of, uh, responsibility, right? You don't want to get to that point. But if you think about it as kind of like, um, 
you know, you're defending your castle, right? And you got your team with you. Um, if somebody has an idea on how to defend that castle and you got your kind of army coming in to kind of overtake it and you see a hole in the defense, you know, you're not going to say, well, that's not my problem. I'm, I'm in charge of this side of the castle. No, if they overrun the castle, you're in trouble. Right. So it's kind of have that kind of attitude. We're all on the same team here. We're trying to accomplish something. If the guy to my left says something that I think is a bad idea, I got to say something because the success or failure of that, we're all in this together and we all own that. So it's kind of instilling that attitude, that way of thinking. Um, but you know, of course it's easier said than done, but I think it's really, that's the the way that I kind of think about it. But there has to be a consequence. And I think that's where, unfortunately, a lot of organizations fall down. We can have the conversations, we can sign up to things. But if there's not a consequence for not pulling in the same direction, then it doesn't count for a lot. I, I used to joke, my ideal role, it probably still is my ideal role, is to be the person who comes up with the great ideas and tells you why your ideas won't work. And but that's almost the mentality you, yeah, that sounds like it, fun. it is, but that's almost the mentality you find in folks. And you know, one of the things I like about our culture is um, that sort of emphasis, even on things like weasel words. It's so, I find it so hard to write without using words like often, usually, normally, in the majority of cases. And you know, we've all read those dubious business cases. This is going to make you a 20,000% return guaranteed to deliver, and it's going to cost you two cents. Uh, you, you read them, you don't believe them. And uh, you, we, you drive in that sort of really data-centric view of initiatives, of experiments, of hypotheses, of statements, I, I think is a, is a game changer as well. Yeah, the, the details matter. We put a lot of effort in being clear about what we mean and, and having that transfer. Yeah, for sure. Yeah, details matter. I think that's something that um, there are there are a lot of leaders out there that need to hear that, I think, right? Because I think a lot of people think as they become a senior leader within an organization that, you know, getting into the detail, details is, uh, you know, that's tactics and that's not what I do anymore. But in reality, you know, if you're a true leader and you want, want to see large scale success, you really have to kind of understand the details on some level. I remember one uh, one person who shall remain nameless didn't have the greatest grasp of technology, and um, he wanted to be a CIO. And he made the statement that he didn't need to understand technology because he was going to be a leader. And that really just that struck me. And you know, I think there's been some great studies even recently about you to be a leader, you actually have to be um, I wouldn't say necessarily a domain expert. You have to be able to ask the right questions. And how can you ask the right questions mm-hmm. if you don't actually understand the area you're managing? It's almost like leadership is a, a, its own functional silo in some people's minds, separate from technology or marketing or or operations. So I, I agree, getting you know, that appropriate level of detail without getting into the micromanagement is, is pretty key to this as well. And and that's the distinction, right? That And that's where I think a lot of people struggle is they don't want to be a micromanager, but you know, you can't just say, I don't want to be a micromanager and then just ignore the details. You need to know at least enough to know the people that you delegate to, whether they're, you know, saying something that makes sense or doesn't make sense, or it's a, you know, um, otherwise you're not managing anything. Forget micromanaging. You're not managing if you don't understand what they're doing. Well, you have to have a certain level of appreciation and respect for the discipline, right? Especially when we're talking about technology. Mm -hmm. I think it's, I mean, and it's, maybe it's easier in technology where you have people explicitly trained, right, as, as software engineers to, to go and, and do that skill. And there's a lot of that. There's a lot of, I think, skills like that. But there's also across the business, there's a lot of um, less concrete um, disciplines. But 
And I don't know, maybe maybe that's why it doesn't translate the the appreciation of of what it could be within technology. I think I, I always looked at it that way and I was like, look, my my job is to optimize that discipline, is to understand it and to to have this team be their best. And you know, I think it's an important skill, um, like a leadership skill across the the entire business is to gain an appreciation for the area that you're leading. Right. I mean, customer service, I could, I'm a great leader. Could I, could I lead customer service? Probably, but not without an appreciation of that discipline. Like there's really great ways to, to have, you know, like uh, there's all sorts of examples of, of, you know, retailers or, or whatever that have great customer service. Phil, I'm sure you could speak much better to this than I can, but like, it's a discipline, right? It's, it's something that you can do very well. And I think leading on the backs of leadership it isn't enough. And it's not a, a you're, you're not respecting the discipline enough, I think, if that's your approach. I think we almost need to take that one step further, though, Brian. I think we have an obligation to make sure the senior most leaders in an organization also have an appreciation for technology, not because they need to get into the weeds. But true. I think what happens today is because of the black box, black box nature of IT and they don't understand it, they're not comfortable with it, everything becomes magic. Uh, and they're continually disappointed. <laughs> and the reality is so many failures I've seen are down to the technology not being integrated into the business appropriately versus the, the technology worked. It did what it said on the tin, but it just, it, you folks didn't understand that technology is there to change human behavior, change how we interact in a company or, or with our customers. So I, I think we've got to do more to demystify it. You wouldn't have a CEO say they don't understand finance because they've got a CFO, and yet you still hear an awful lot of that about technology. Yeah, true. Yeah, I think a lot of CIOs are a little bit sensitive in this area because um, there's a perception difference amongst the C-suite with the CIO and the other uh, execs, you know. And there's this kind of for a lot of CIOs, and it's totally understandable. There's there's this kind of uh, um, uh, perception that you need to fight that you're kind of like the most senior ranking kind of. IT support guy rather than kind of have a full seat at the table. So I think this is a discussion in and of itself, but I think that's one of the reasons why, um, you know, a CIO and CTO might have a little bit, you know, a tougher time with that. Phil makes a good point though, too, about, um, I think more and more leaders outside of IT need to have a greater appreciation for technology and, and use it as a way to drive business outcomes versus having it be that black box in the corner that, you know, that, that big project that we're, we're doing to save money. Um, there's probably a whole conversation there about business leaders that are, that are becoming more and more tech savvy are, are likely having much greater success. Absolutely. So, uh, experiment more, fail less. It's that simple. <laughs> so I mean, I guess, you know, kind of in summary here, I mean, I don't know, I think we need to define failure at some point, but, um, you know, if you have an idea and you discover it's a bad idea, bad idea an hour later. Is that a failure or is that, is that an experiment? I think it's kind of, a lot of this is uh, kind of understanding what, what the definitions are here. Right. And, and I think if we're talking about if, if we're going to fail, fail earlier or as early as possible, are we saying get so early that it's not a failure anymore? No, there's the difference between learning, exploring, and actually embarking on something. I think I look at experiments are we decided to go do something and it may or may not work out, it may or may not deliver on the outcome. And I think the the upfront exploration of should we do this thing, big, small, whatever, th that's not, not a part of it. It's really like, 
okay, let's go, let's start changing how we work, right? I mean, we're, we experiment all the time on our team and there's a lot of, you know, two-way doors, right? Things that we can reverse. We did, I, there's like a couple examples. We're doing office hours to, right, help enable um, our field teams here. Like that was an experiment. We can easily do that once a week for a couple of weeks and, and see how it goes. Do we get people showing up? Is, do, do they say it's valuable, right? Like that to me is an experiment. And it's something that we learn from and we, it could have been a complete flop. It could have been a great success, mm. but it's safe too, right? We failed. It's not a big deal. You can call it a failure. It's not a big deal. You can reverse from it. And I think that's, it's, it's finding ways to do that and being willing to, to do that on a small scale and move quickly, have that, that bias for action to, to go out and learn and decide if this is something that you should now invest in and really make a big thing or, you know, otherwise, okay, we, we tried it. We learned some stuff. Maybe we'll have a different idea of how to solve a problem that we think is here, but no harm, no foul. Yeah, I think we almost need to change the language. So experiment more, learn faster. Yeah. But also, the I think people are often very comfortable with the status quo, even though they deny it. And there is still that belief that more planning leads to more success. And if it doesn't, the answer is more planning. And there's this, uh, you know, I had a customer tell me recently, we have grown numb to the fact that waterfall does not work in many cases. So I, I think some of this is about how do we describe the future, but it's also creating a certain degree of dissatisfaction and reality about the current state as well and, and how successful that is. So don't fail more. Um, <laughs> if you do fail, you know, find out the, the, the problems uh, with the initiative as early as possible so you can move on to the next one experiment as much as possible. Yeah, Jake, I think that's right. And I think it's also, you know, we're talking about like software delivery, waterfall, whatever else. I, I, it's also just in your processes and how you, you know, move around and, and, and try different things. It doesn't have to be, it's not, it doesn't have to be this massive transition from waterfall to something very different. It's like change your daily behavior of how you interact and how you move around and, and how you, you test ideas. And I think that's, that's the, you know, summary of it. I'm happy we all agree. When we say fail fast, we aren't promoting failure, but rather encouraging experimentation and learning from it. Don't forget to subscribe to our channel and remember to submit your questions on the AWS Executive Insights website or directly to us on LinkedIn, and we'll do our best to answer them in future episodes. See you next time.